if you want to take inventory of your deepest commitments, you can ask yourself, what do I do habitually and what do I do eagerly? So the rest of the story, Aubrey introduced me last night telling you the story about my daughter Ellie when she was two years old. She came to the Spears flat uh, in the UK and uh, Spencer was a baby and Ellie, our youngest, was a baby. And they lived in this uh, nice flat in England with beautiful white carpets. Our daughter Ellie, we didn't know then that she had dairy allergies, but she'd eaten a nice piece of chocolate cake. And it is true that our daughter Ellie uh, saw that cake once going in, and then she reproduced it coming out, the chocolate cake on their white carpet. And then we got to see lots of people's deep heart commitments come out in eagerness. (laughs) Chrissy was eager to comfort our child. Chrissy zooped in, and she grabbed Ellie and carried her away and, and tended to her. Janelle was deeply concerned. They were renting this flat with white carpet. Janelle was deeply concerned. Actually, she, she caught some things coming out of Ellie's mouth first and gave her some great care. And then, and, then, and then she moved toward the carpet, and I felt terrible because my child did this. So Janelle and I were deeply committed uh, to getting to the carpet and trying to clean things up. So Chrissy's really committed to Ellie. Janelle and I are really committed to the cleanup project. And then after the kind of dust settled, we look out the door. The door is wide open. And 50 yards out the door stands Aubrey and my son Clark. And they're bent over panting. (laughs) Because they had sprinted as fast as they could to get away from this disaster. And what that simply illustrates is we all have deep, hard commitments. And they, and they move us into eagerness. And as silly as that is, this passage reflects that, the Second Corinthians 8 passage. I want you to see it with me just for a few moments tonight, brief moments. The Apostle Paul here is talking to the church at Corinth. And he's trying to motivate them to complete the gathering of a gift to care for the poor saints back in Jerusalem Paul is working among the Gentile churches, this very Jewish apostle who now knows that the Messiah has come. He's died. He's risen again. Resurrection's already happened. How has the the age to come broken into the present age? The Messiah has died in the place of the wicked and risen again as the obedient son. And so the new age is inaugurated in him, and we know it's coming in fullness when the general resurrection occurs, but it's, the resurrection's already broken into the world. And the Apostle Paul, who knows that this Jesus, this hick Galilean from Nazareth, who really is David's greater son, who really is the Messiah, when Paul realizes that he really is the Messiah, he understands it's time to go get the nations, go gather the nations. So he goes on this project of bringing about the obedience of the nations. And as the gospel reaches more and more Gentile nations and his own people, a a small minority, are actually believing in their own Messiah. And Paul is very determined to see the gospel bring people from all kinds of ethnic differences together in one family 
breaking down the barriers between Jew and Gentile, like he says in Ephesians 2. Paul wants to see that all these different people groups are now being brought into the one family of Abraham because the seed of Abraham has come. And so Paul, when he does this collection, you can read about it in the book of Acts. You can read about it in Romans 15 and 16. You read about it in 1 Corinthians 16, referenced kind of in Galatians 2.10, and also here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Paul is on a very serious mission as he goes out with the gospel, bringing different communities of faith. This collection from the Gentile churches back to the church, the believers in Jerusalem who've been impoverished for various complex reasons. Paul is doing mercy ministry. Paul is taking the gifts out here and meeting the concrete needs of people back in Jerusalem. But as he does mercy ministry, he's also doing racial reconciliation. And what Paul does here in 2 Corinthians 8 is the Corinthians had begun to participate in this gathering of material gifts to go back to their new family in Jerusalem. Jews and Gentiles in the first century treating each other like family. Oh, my brother's in need? Well, let's go meet his needs. And that's what Paul's doing. He's getting Jewish believers and Gentile believers to live and act like one family across ethnic, across cultural, across economic economic stratified lines, getting to live like the people of God, this new family. And as he does this, he writes 2 Corinthians in chapters 8 and 9. He's motivating the Corinthians to complete this. They've started the project. They need to complete the project. He tells them about other believers to motivate them. He tells them about the eagerness of the believers in Macedonia, specifically the believers in Philippi and Thessalonica, and Berea. And so Paul has also gathered among the saints in Macedonia, and he describes the Macedonians' generosity and joy and eagerness, and he's doing it to motivate the Corinthians. So as we hear Paul describing the hard-to-imagine generosity of the Macedonia, it was written originally to motivate first-century Christians, and it can have the same effect on us. So let's look at this passage together in St. Corinthians 8. Paul says, We want you to know, family, about the grace of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For, and listen to the context, in a severe test of affliction, they're not on easy street. They're, they're going through their own trials in a severe test of affliction How do the Macedonian Christians act? Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Those words don't make sense. Isn't that great? Their extreme poverty, along with their abundance of joy, overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Who can do this? A wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, no one had to harangue them. No one had to twist their arm. There were no head locks or noogies given by the Apostle Paul to the believers in Macedonia. They gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord. And listen to these words. Begging us earnestly 
for the favor, that is the grace of participating in the relief of the saints. Here was the response of the Macedonian church. When they heard the Apostle Paul, this Jewish apostle who brought the gospel to them of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they saw themselves coming out of kingdoms of darkness and entering into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. When they heard the gospel that their sins would no longer count against them. That they could be reconciled to a holy God and be his holy people. One of their responses to that when Paul said, hey, by the way, not only am I planning all these churches, but some of our family who formerly hated you guys, they're having a hard time. So I'm taking up a collection out here among the Gentile churches so that we can go back to the Jewish believers and meet their material needs. And when the Macedonians heard that, their response was, please, Please let us do this. I know we're going through a trial, and I know we don't have much, but could we please give, and we'd like to give more than we're able to, please. Isn't that amazing? They begged us earnestly for the favor, the grace of participating in the relief of the saints. They had to participate. There's a New Testament scholar that talks about giving in the New Testament. Uh, ben Witherington's a New Testament scholar. And he tells the story of uh, his dad one time was part of a church. And they had a giving campaign. And they were, do- I don't even know what they were doing. And they took pledges. And all these people made pledges. And then different uh, leaders in the church went out and checked on those pledges. And uh, Ben Witherington's dad went to go visit a widow who lived in a trailer who'd written a pledge and he visits everybody and she was a poor widow and he knew she was and he went to visit her and he's like I'm not asking for this pledge there's no way (laughs) but he visited with her and he was kind to her and he offered to pray with her and she was glad for the visit and glad for the prayer and then he just said he would leave and she said oh wait 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 you don't have my gift that I pledged he said oh Mrs. I can't remember her name oh Mrs. Holt you know you know it's okay it's okay, the, the, the campaign's going fine, we, it, we don't really need your pledge. And she grabbed him and took her gift and put it in his hand and said, don't you dare take the privilege away from me from participating in what the Lord is doing in our body. She was eager to give according to her means and even beyond her means. For her, it was a joy and a privilege, not a burden. So Paul says, accordingly, we urge Titus... That as he had started, so he, would, he should complete among you guys, you Corinthians, this act of grace. And then, I love this, Paul writes to them, But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and as you excel in our love for you, we really do love you, see that you excel in this act of grace also, And then Paul goes to say, hey, I say this not as a command, though he gets pretty pushy in chapter 8 and 9. Uh, not as a command, but I want to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. I want your action, your affections, your decisions to match theirs. Because that's real proof that they love the Lord. And they're committed to God's mission among God's people. And I want you to, to complete what... You started so that there's the same evidence of your faith and your love. I want to see you follow through. And so it's an act of love. And then I hope everyone can just say this verse. You know what Paul says then? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so you through his poverty might be made rich. Isn't that wonderful? 2 Corinthians 8, 9, if you've not memorized it, commit it to memory. Weave it into your heart. Paul, that, that's, the, that's the baseline of the motivation here. For you, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So you through his poverty might be made rich. So think about just for a minute the poverty of Jesus Christ. We know that when Jesus was born as an Israelite, they were an oppressed people. They were under the Roman Empire. And that's when Jesus was born. The Son of God incarnated among us when the people of God, not during Solomon's reign, when everyone sat under his own vine and fig tree, but when they were oppressed, oppressed by that massive Roman Empire. But more than that, his people were from Galilee, from Nazareth. Uh, I'm from Tennessee. Uh, Virginia is a spiffier and cooler state. I'll admit that. Uh, but at least I'm not from Kentucky. Just kidding, Drew. Um, I, I, I'm not, Drew and I are not from Washington, D.C. Kentucky and Tennessee. Jesus wasn't from Manhattan. He wasn't born inside the Beltway. He wasn't born in Jerusalem. The reason he went and was born in Bethlehem is because that external empire was requiring taxation of the people of God. And as you know, Joseph and Mary uh, took Jesus there, and then they had, the, had a, a refugee experience when Herod was like a new pharaoh, and you know the story as Matthew tells it. So Jesus came at a time when God's people lived under oppression, and also he, was, he, he lived in a marginal place, not in a city that was powerful, even among those oppressed people. But you know what Luke tells us, that when Joseph and Mary brought the proper offering sacrifice for Jesus at his birth, they brought the offering of a poor family. Because Jesus was born into a poor family. So the eternal, when Paul writes that the eternal Son of God in our humanity became, though he was rich, this is the, who is Jesus? He's the agent of the creation of all things. He's sustaining all things. That, that's who he is. This is the one who receives glory and honor in the throne room. Who's in all eternity is equal with the Father and the Spirit. The true God, the eternal Son. And though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Not just metaphorically. But not only did he live as an oppressed person in a marginal place in, in an actual poor family. But he took on the debts of the world. And became an indebted person and was crucified in the place of the wicked. Jesus became poor that you might become rich. What does that mean? Once again, Paul here is unfolding the inheritance that now the nations get. If anyone believes in Jesus, we become co-heirs with him of all things. And so here's what Paul is saying. You, if you're in Christ Jesus, you're in the family of God. And you're rich beyond your imagination. You have eternal wealth that can't be diminished and can't go away and it can't disappear. And you can live like that is true now, even if it will look silly and ridiculous to your neighbors who are living inside another kingdom and as citizens of another age. Who can do this? And where do you start? 
Uh, there, over 100 years ago, there was a, a group of Mizoram uh, Indians in, the, in India. Uh, they were a very, very small minority of believers, the Mitso people. And they had no way to support pastors and missionaries. So everybody was tri-vocational. But they wanted to send more, the gospel out more and more. And so what the people, uh, the Mizo people did was a practice called Bufaitam. And when they cooked rice for their own families, they took a handful of rice and cooked it to feed themselves. And they took a handful of rice and threw it in the corner of their kitchen. Their small little areas that are like probably half the size of some of our bathrooms. And every time they cooked a meal, whether they ate once a day or twice a day, they took a handful of rice and threw it in the corner. And all of them did it. It spread through the whole community. And they did it for a whole year. And at the whole year, they, they sold the rice to, to get money to send out Aubrey's with the gospel to the next community. And the whole year, they raised $1.50. That's how much they raised. That's how poor they were. They've been doing this practice for over a century now, and now they raise over $1.5 million a year doing the same practice because so many people have come to faith in the Lord Jesus because they faithfully sent out missionaries with the gospel through the practice of Bufaitam, a handful of rice. Who can do this? Anyone. You can start with a handful of rice. There's also a prison in Argentina called number 25 and this is this is the reality there there's two things about this prison block in Argentina everyone in in block 25 has murdered at least two people you have to have murdered two people to get in there another truth about this block is there's a burgeoning church and seminary there because people began to come to faith and then share their faith with their other cellmates. And then it just kept growing and growing. And so lots of these inmates have come to faith in Jesus. And they've, they've needed pastors inside the cell block. And they've needed seminary training inside the cell block. And so they've grown and grown and grown. And one of their practices is in Argentina, you don't automatically get food and clothing. If your family doesn't send you food and clothing, you starve or you go around naked. So the Christians... In number 25, tithe a third of everything their family gives gives them to provide food and clothing for their inmates. Who can do this? And where can you start? We can all participate just by starting in the smallest of ways. In partnership with our families. In partnership with our fellowship groups. In partnership with anyone who can hear us say, I want to begin in a small way. Will you begin with me? I want to experience the joy of the Macedonians who lived like they were wealthy even under a severe trial. Even in poverty. I want to know fellowship with my Savior who, though he was rich, yet he became poor. So that I, through his poverty, might be made rich. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Please help us believe it. That you impoverished yourself to enrich us. And I pray tonight that you would enrich us in our heart of hearts, in our character. That we would more and more love you, give ourselves to you, and love your work and give ourselves to it. Would you move us to give more time to the work of the church of the incarnation of our fellowship group and our families. 
Would you move us to give more resources? Would you move us to begin one new practice this week, this coming week, and to invite others to pray with us and hold us accountable to follow through and finish any project that we begin by hearing your voice and trusting in your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.